0: Alrighty then This morning we come to chapter 8 in the book of Daniel. Before I begin, I want to read a couple of quotes I came across as I prepared for this sermon. One quote, "Daniel chapter 8 is a preacher's nightmare." Unquote. One theologian wrote that Daniel chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 are, quote, the most difficult, difficult short passage of the entire book, unquote. So let me just tell you, these aren't the quotes that you want to come across when you're preparing for a sermon, all right? These aren't the ones that you want to read. No, uh, but we do believe... I, I think we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training of righteousness. Right? We believe that, right? And, and that includes chapter 8 of Daniel, right? All right, as long as we're on the same page. So I think we need to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us God's Word this morning so that we would be encouraged and strengthened As we live in our Babylon. Now, as I mentioned last week, the last chapters in the book, six chapters in the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, are 80% prophecy and 20% narration. In these chapters, Daniel is looking back on dreams and visions that he had in the previous years that he had recorded in chapters 1 and through 6. And since chapters 7 through 12 focus primarily on prophecy, again, I think it's important for us to establish some ground rules when it comes to interpretation of prophecy. I shared these last week, but I want to make sure that you get them straight. All right? Number one. The book of Daniel is part of Holy Scripture, and therefore it is inspired by God, accurate, and trustworthy. Even the angel told Daniel in the dream, these words are true. Secondly, the prophecies of Daniel must be understood in relationship to and in light of other prophecies in Daniel. It's a basic rule of hermeneutics or interpretation of Scripture that if you want to understand the meaning of a thing, then you deal with it within the context of that verse uh, or within that chapter or within that book or within that testament. You do that before you start jumping all around the Bible. So we have to look at these visions in the light of the previous visions that Daniel has had within the book. Thirdly, the prophecies of Daniel must be understood in and in relationship to the rest of Scripture without causing confusion or contradiction. And that's my job. Fourth, because because prophetic literature uses figurative language, one should be cautious in attempting to identify every horn, head, and toe. All right? Don't get sucked into that. And then lastly, the most simplest interpretation is the safest and usually the most edifying. You don't have to get weird up in here. All right? Just keep it simple. I won't finish it. Just keep it simple. Now, Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is divided into two parts. The first part is verses 1 through 14 when Daniel is writing down the vision that he saw. And then the second part, verses 15 through 27 is when the angel Gabriel is given the interpretation of the dream. Now this is the first time an angel's name is mentioned in the Bible. All right? So you might want to keep that in the back of your mind for the next time you play Bible trivia, all right? First place that an angel's name is mentioned in the Bible was Daniel chapter 8. Now, we're not going to fool ourselves. We, we see that Daniel himself found the vision to be a little bit difficult to understand and to interpret. But we come from this from looking at it from hindsight, and hindsight is 2020. Daniel is looking at this as far as forward. And so it's difficult for him to be able to gather the information needed for the interpretation of the dream, even though we thank God for Gabriel and for the Lord sending Gabriel to help, help him out. Also, I just want to mention again that the Bible is not written to be a history book. The Bible is meant to record the redemptive purposes of God in and through Jesus Christ. But the Bible is consistent with world history and all that we talk about today you can find on the pages of world history which is really, really, really cool. Daniel received this dream, the third year of the King Belshazzar's reign. Now again... As Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, died, Belshazzar ascended to the throne after his successors either died of an untimely birth or were assassinated. We see that Belshazzar is most remembered as the one who saw the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5. And also we know that he died that same night that he saw the handwriting on the wall when the Persians invade, invaded Babylon and captured not only the capital city, but the whole empire. So, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one I had already appeared to me. So Daniel's second dream in chapter 8 comes two years after the dream that was recorded in chapter 7. In Daniel's first dream, remember that Daniel ended that dream writing, This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale and I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel was deeply troubled because he desired to know more details about what was going to happen after the destruction of Babylon. Now he knew that Babylon was going to fall, but he wondered what empire was going to conquer Babylon and what would happen after that. And it seems that these questions occupied Daniel's thoughts for two years until one day he writes in my vision I saw myself in the synodal of Susa the providence of Elam in my vision I was beside the Yule Canal now Daniel had either been mentally or physically transported to this location that he's identifying here in verse 2 and at, by, now by the time at the time of Daniel's second dream, people would have been totally unfamiliar as far as what the city he was talking about, the city of Susa, but what's important to understand is that this would Susa would become the great capital city for the Persian Empire, the great capital city for the empire that was going to take over Babylon. So, verse t- 2 tells us that Daniel was standing in enemy territory. And not just standing in, 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 in Persia's capital city, but it tells us that he was in the emperor's palace. The word citadel in our translation is actually palace. So here he is, he's been transported to the capital city of the invading army and and empire that's about ready to come upon them, and he's standing right inside of the king's palace. Now, the whole thing of just being transported to another city would have been enough to put him into shock. But now he comes alive and understands that he's in the king's palace of the Persians. I would be kind of freaked out right now. You have to understand, all of Daniel's other dream experiences have been in Babylon. Either standing before Nebuchadnezzar, or at Belshazzar's great feast, or lying on his own bed. But now Daniel finds himself outside of Babylon in a foreign land. And this unusual experience described in detail by Daniel in the opening verses of this chapter becomes the stage on which this great drama is played out. The great drama of chapter 8. Daniel's dream uses animals to describe the conquest of the second and third empires. Now what Daniel sees in his dream is fantasy. But what he is describing is reality. Daniel is seeing real nations and real historical events that is recorded on the pages of world history after he saw this vision. It really shows you the majesty of God's word. Now, in Daniel's previous dreams, he had saw four kingdoms prior to the establishment of God's eternal kingdom in Christ. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream in chapter 2. And Christian teaching throughout the ages have always held that these four empires prior to the first coming of Christ is Babylon, Persia... Greece, and Rome. And then in chapter 7, which we looked at last week, Daniel saw four beasts. And conservative scholars agree with very, very few exceptions that the four beasts in Daniel's dream in chapter 7 signify the four empires prior to the first coming of Christ. The same empires of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, Babylon... Persia, Greece, and Rome. But Daniel's dream in chapter 8 is different because he only sees two beasts. And scholars agree that in this dream, the two beasts represent Persia and Greece waging war against one another. Daniel sees an increase of wickedness in the world and he asks God, how long will God's people have to wait for deliverance? So as Daniel has this dream, he stood in the Persian palace and he saw a two-horned ram. He writes, I looked up, And there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. Now, one of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I saw the ram as it charged against the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became very great." Now, Gabriel, later on in his interpretation, will tell Daniel, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. uh, Gabriel clearly identifies this two-horned ram as the empire of the Medes and the Persians. You don't need to be a biblical scholar to figure that out. Gabriel's done all the hard work for you. Now the two horns, one larger than the other, represents the dual states of the one empire, the Medes and the Persians. And that's the way the empire was understood at its very beginning, but later on it would be known as the Persian Empire. The Medes weren't canceled out, they just became less and less in control of the whole empire. And we're told that the Persian conquests will... rushed towards the west and the north and the south. And even though the Persians did expand to the east, secular history records that its principal movement was towards the west, the north, and the south, exactly the way it's recorded right here. Amazing. And no kingdom could stand against the Persian Empire for over 200 years. It became mighty, mighty no one could be rescued from it. Just like Daniel said. But then comes the one-horned goat. As I was thinking about this two-horned ram, Daniel writes, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. And Gabriel tells Daniel later, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. Again, you don't have to be a biblical scholar. The angel's done all the work for you. The shaggy goat is Greece. Now, even though the description of the goat is brief... It is obviously anticipating the dramatic role of Alexander the Great, the first king of Greece. And this single unicorn-type horn represents how Alexander single-handedly led his empire to be one of the greatest in the world. Alexander himself was one of the world's greatest military minds and nothing could stand in his way. Just as Daniel records it, he crossed the whole earth without touching the ground. Alexander would wage war against the Persians and bring the end of the Persian Empire, a war between the ram and the goat. Daniel records, and the one-horned goat came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power." This Daniel's dream describes Alexander's great, mighty victory over the Persians. Now, history records for us that Alexander the Great died at the height of his power. Actually, he was in his 30s. And before his death, Alexander divided his empire amongst four generals, which is illustrated in Daniel's dream of the four horns. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. Remember, that was Alexander. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. That's the four generals. And Gabriel tells Daniel, the four, hand, the, four, the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but they will not have the same power. So Daniel sees this, this little horn. See it in the drawing there? Emerging out of one of the four horns. And he writes in verse 9, Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. Now, many identify this, this little horn, this, this wicked horn as Anticus, Etiphanes, and to save myself and you from any more torture of trying to say his name, I'm just going to shorten it to Ante, Ante of Greece. You all with me here? And also I'm going to use a little play on words using this shortened name, Ante, a little bit later. Let's see if you can pick up on it, all right? Now, Antti rose in power within the Greek Empire about 100 years after Alexander's death. Anti's military expeditions covered all the areas mentioned in verse 9, including Palestine, which is identified in verse 9 as the beautiful land. This horn which started small, grew exceedingly great. And Daniel tells us, it grew grew until it reached the host of heaven, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. Now, this description is something new in the dream. Remember, the goat and the lamb... They magnified themselves, but this horn magnifies himself to be equal to the host of heaven. He's magnifying himself to be equal to God. This horn had no regard for God or for his starry host and considered himself capable of trampling over the army of God. And Gabriel helps us understand the horn when he writes in verse 22, the four horns that re- that replaced the one was broken off represents the four kingdoms that emerged from his nation but will not have the same power. So that is Alexander dying and then the four generals. Are you still, still here with me? But then he con- then, then we see... In the latter part of their reign, that's the latter part of the four generals reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astonishing devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. Notice that Gabriel, in his definition of this horn, is, is not interested in focusing in on the horn's desire for world domination. But rather, he's interested in identifying the horn's Character. Previously, with the ram, the goat, and even the four horns that came before, it was about world domination. But that's not what it's about anymore. Something has changed with this wicked horn. I want you to notice three characteristics about this horn. That Gabriel tells us. First, Gabriel tells us that in the latter part of the reign of the four generals. That the rebels have become, quote, completely wicked. Not militarily strong. That's not what he's talking about. They are completely wicked. Up to this point of the dream, it's all about been waging war. But now wickedness. ...has completely taken over... ...and this horn emerges as the most wicked of all. Gabriel brings attention to the horn's wicked character... ...by describing it as, as fierce-looking... ...and a master of intrigue. And those aren't compliments. What he's saying is that this horn... ...had a dark, obscure nature... Secondly, I want you to notice that the horn will become very strong, but not by its own power. Which is different than the ram and the goat. This horn had a demented spiritual condition that was driven by a power other than his own. He was so wicked that apparently someone or something was fueling the wickedness in him. It wasn't by his own power. Thirdly, notice the horn's astounding devastation, which every empire causes astounding devastation. You can't can't gain control of the world without causing some astounding devastation. But notice that his astonishing devastation is amplified in the same verse by his extreme violence towards the holy people of God. This is not a normal guy here. That's the point. Daniel tells us that this horn set itself up to be as great "...as the commander of the army of the Lord, it took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord, and his sanctuary was torn down." And history, secular history, records that Anti of Greece did all three of these things. This guy set himself up to be as great as God, demanding divine honor... Actually, the second part of his name means God manifest. That's who this guy thought he was, was God manifest. He stopped the morning and evening sacrifices from being offered as worshipped in Jerusalem. No more sacrifices. And tells us, That he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem to such a point that it wasn't fit for use. And all three things are written down in verse 11. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that just like God? Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifices were giving over to the horn. It prospered in everything it did. Truth was thrown to the ground. And Gabriel adds, and he, and he will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. And when the people of God feel secure, the text tells us in 1st part 25, He will destroy many. He will destroy many of the people of God. And he will take his stand against the prince of princes. This horn will not only seek to destroy and annihilate the people of God but he stood in defiance to the messianic hopes in Christ. He took his stand against the Lord and against his anointed. He is a wicked guy. And you can see because of his intense wickedness, that some theologians conclude that the horn is not only anti of Greece, but is a prototype of the anti-Christ that will come. See what I did there, anti, anti? That's pretty, pretty cute. I, know. I don't need any applause or anything. It's all good. This guy's a prototype of all the Antichrists that will come on the stages of world history until the second coming of Christ. But Gabriel does give Daniel some good news. In the second part of verse 25, yet he will be destroyed and not by human power. He will be destroyed, but not by human power. So, just like God sent the Messianic Meteor in chapter 2 to destroy the kingdoms of this world and establish the eternal kingdom of Christ, just like the Son of Man destroyed the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 and established His eternal kingdom, So we see that that Gabriel tells Daniel that this wicked horn will be destroyed, but not by human hands, but by the power of God. And then the end will come. It is important that you notice within the text that Daniel, on at least three occasions, and a couple that are not direct, says the dream is to tell about the end. This is the reason why many scholars believe that, yeah, we're talking about historical events here, but we're talking about it broader than just until the first coming in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that no matter how wicked the world becomes, how many, or no matter how many, antichrists rise up. We need to know that our God reigns and his judgments are true and just. Amen? Amen. Then Daniel overhears two angels asking, How long will the people of God have to wait? How long will they have to wait until God issues his judgment against the wickedness of this world, typified within anti? He says... Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the rebellion that caused desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling of the foot of the Lord's people? And he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated." I believe that it is pointless to attempt to calculate to 2,300 even in mornings in order to determine the exact number of days or years that is being referenced to here. I will only share with you. This, I will only share with you this, that the 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 countless attempts to try to calculate to 2,300. Uh, years have led to endless numbers of interpretation and once you choose one there's going to be 50 or 500 that are going to choose another it does nothing but lead to confusion and sometimes contradiction to the word of God and it's useless to do it I believe The 2,300 evenings and mornings simply imply that the people of God will only have to wait a relatively short duration of time until Christ destroys the evil one and establishes his kingdom on earth. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament expounds on this when he writes... With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. But know this, that the Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up and since all these things are to be destroyed in this way peter asks a question what sort of people should we be since we have the word of god in both testaments teaching us what's going to happen and that wickedness will, there'll be wages of war, wickedness will, will intensify, and the people of God will be waiting, 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 and for one day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will destroy the evil one and establish his kingdom on earth. What type of people ought we to be since we know these things? And Peter answers his question. We ought to be holy Have holy conduct and godliness, looking for the coming of the day of God. So as we wait, we have been mandated to be holy and godly and to have part of our prayer life come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The last words in the book of Revelation. Peter concludes, but according to his promise, we're looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Amen. We wait for that day. World without end. Amen and amen. Let me just share some closing thoughts here. You might not be much into prophecy You're saying, wow, Pastor, what are you doing here? I just want you to know for certain that Daniel's second dream that's recorded in Daniel chapter 8 describes the time from Daniel's later years up into the first coming of Christ. No doubt about it. We see Daniel sees that there will be wars, an increase of wickedness, but finally the Messiah will come and he will destroy the works of the evil one. Christ will defeat principalities and powers by making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Daniel's second dream is identifying the period of time from Daniel's later years until the first coming of Christ and his victory on the cross. But Daniel's second dream also serves as a prototype of world history leading up to the second coming of Christ, where the Bible tells us that there will be wars and rumors of wars, People will turn their ears away from the truth. Wickedness will increase, but Christ will come and He will establish His eternal kingdom where we will enjoy our eternal, glorious inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. Thanks be to God. Have you noticed in the world today In our Babylon, there's wars all around. Have you noticed people are turning their ears away from the truth? I don't know, is it just me, but does wickedness seem to be on the increase here? (laughs) It seems to be exactly what's going on. The Bible's just giving us a heads up. But you might be saying, listen, I'm not really all into this prophecy stuff, Pastor. You know, whatever. Just tell me something for me, will you? Okay, here it goes. I believe that Daniel's second dream also serves as a prototype of the Christian life as we dwell in our Babylon. There are foreign forces seeking to tempt us and to lead us astray and to attack us spiritually. And if we give in to those attacks, wickedness will increase in our lives. So what should we do? We must wait on the Lord to renew our strength. We are to overcome the attacks of the world by the power of God. Not by might, not by power, but by thy spirit, says the Lord. Amen? Amen? Brothers sisters, there is a war raging against us right now as God's people. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the world for- forces of darkness, against a spiritual force of wickedness. And the warfare that we are experiencing, well it's nothing like what Daniel records in chapter 8 or it's, it's nothing like what some Christians experience even today in communist countries and territories controlled by ISIS. But it's war nevertheless. We live in a world where people have set themselves up to be higher than God. Have you noticed? We live in a world where people frown on people who worship God and attend worship services. Have you noticed? We live in a world where people have thrown truth to the ground. Have you noticed? We, many people today, they stand in defiance to Christ. That's the world we live in. That's our Babylon. And that mindset is increasing day after day after day after day. Now, let's just bring it right home to you. There are some of you that are really struggling right now. You're in the midst of conflict and war in your life right now. And I don't know exactly what it is, But I think that you feel like wickedness is winning. And you're asking the Lord, how long do I have to wait for you to deliver me from this war and this wickedness that seems to attack me? You're sitting here today and you feel exactly the way Daniel felt at the end of his dream. You're wore out, you're exhausted and appalled. And you need to hear the good news. Whatever you're fighting against right now will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. Your attacker will be destroyed. It will be destroyed, but not by human power. It will be destroyed by the work of God in our midst. And that's what we should pray for. Do you not know Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Well, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unstrudable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Don't you want to be like that today? Then the promises of God to you are yes and amen. The Lord is here today to give you strength because you're weary. Some of you are, have grown weary and you're tired and some of you... Well, let's just admit it, you have stumbled badly. (laughs) But the Lord is here today to give you strength. We have a great opportunity this morning to celebrate the goodness of our God and the grace that He's given to us through His Son, our Lord Jesus, the victor of all, by celebrating together the Lord's Supper. The table set behind me is not the table of this church nor the table of this denomination. This is the Lord's table. Therefore, all those who are believers in Christ Jesus, even it just happened five seconds ago, this meal is for you. On this table, there's two simple elements, the bread which represents his body and the cup who represents Jesus's blood. The two simple elements and symbols of our faith that through the life and death of jesus christ he is our victor and he can destroy the wicked one in our lives today and one day he will destroy the wicked one in the years to come and we will reign with him forever and ever amen but right now we're a little weary we're a little tired somewhat exhausted And we need the Lord's strength. So through receiving these elements, making a common confession together, we receive a spiritual nourishment, spiritually renewed, so that we might truly live in our Babylon for the glory of God. And I pray this morning that as I prepare the table for us and the worship team comes back up, that we will take time to examine ourselves as the scriptures admonish us to do. Most particularly, really examine your heart, asking, really seeking those areas where you're really waiting on the Lord. You're really waiting on the Lord. And you really need his strength to glorify him during this time of waiting. Let's pray.